irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can find me online at nolatherapy.com. That's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. You can book sessions by phone, Skype, FaceTime, or in person at one of my two locations, Los Angeles and New Orleans, and you can listen to archived episodes of the show. There's a link to subscribe to this show um, on iTunes and Google Play. You can also find past episodes on YouTube, and the most recent endeavor that I have stepped off into is that you can become a patron of my show through patreon.com. It's a website that allows you to donate to other podcasters, authors, artists, etc. to help us fulfill our dreams and goals for as little as $3 a month to support our work. So you can access my introductory video and learn more about my projects either at nolatherapy.com. There's a tab on the home page. You know, click here for information to become a patron or through Patreon's website itself. You would just type in patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir. And I really appreciate any support in advance as I have reached my one-year mark and, and in my second year of bringing you really interesting guests Today, I am with a dear friend and colleague in New Orleans. Her name is Bridget Falcon, LPC. She's a licensed professional counselor, and her website is neworleanstherapist.com. She has worked for over 10 years in the field of addictions and treats issues of anxiety, depression, and trauma. She also specializes in treating both gay and straight couples in monogamous and polyamorous relationships. And we're going to talk a lot about that today, just how relationships have shifted and changed into different dynamics and and such. So I'm going to bring you on, Bridget. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to be with you, too. How are you today? I'm excellent, probably similar to you, being clients. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'm really excited to talk to you about polyamory, especially because like I told you before we came on the air live, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had some clients that are in polyamorous relationships that have educated me as far as what that means for them. I wondered if you can educate our listening audience. What, what is polyamory? Sure, sure. I was introduced to polyamory actually through working with some couples and individuals who were looking to um, explore it, which led me to explore it more. There's a lot more literature about it. Just in recent years, we have um, a lot more available to us. But poly polyamory or what's known as an open relationship okay. is um, consensual non-monogamy, basically. It can be physical, emotional, or both. Um some people use um, 
labels for partners, such as like primary partner, secondary, tertiary, and that's sometimes helpful. Um, yeah. I think for couples and individuals to think about, you know, when you have a primary partner, it's someone who is really going to serve, not serve, but function as a day-to-day um, partner person in your life. Exactly. And to me, it sounds like it's it's the consent and knowledge, you know, that really makes this special, you know, and different because people involved know about each other. Is that accurate? That's so accurate. And that's actually a really um, important component of it that is like different from non-consensual, right? Which is like cheating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A whole different, <laughs> it's a whole different thing. Um, and with polyamory, I think an important part of it too is the healthy component of your primary partnership. So it's not really, or at least I've seen it not work for people when it's done to, um, I guess, be in addition to a relationship that's not healthy or functioning or satisfying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Can you, well, um, it, it causes me to think, can you talk a bit about when, when you work with couples, do you think, and like, I know there's a polyamory society I've pulled up online.org. Do you think there's, you know, this kind of always existed. Now it's just more open and spoken about. Do you think it fills a need for co- modern culture and society and the ways relationships have changed over the years to meet I people's think needs? I both of those are true. I think both of those tr- are true. I think it's something that's been around forever. I think if you look at um, history, you know, people have these, whether it's spiritual um, writings or even in mythology, you know, taking on lovers or girlfriends or yeah. secondary partners. I think it's something that's been part of human nature for a really long time. And then I think your second part of your question, which is like, is it part of our, our modern culture? I think that's true too. As people are exploring, um, evolving spiritually and energetically and looking at connections and intimacy, not just to other people, but to ourselves and what makes a person feel um, joy and and complete. And I think we're so dynamic as human beings that we can really hold sacred connections with so many different people in different ways. And it's, I think the, the common misconception is that this is really based on sex and it's not at all. Right. That's a component of it, but it's not the, the most important piece. Right. It, okay. So one of the things that just thinking about relationships traditionally in the past, like back in the 50s, 60s, where or, or our grandparents even, particularly my Mimi and Pop that are now deceased, you know, staying married mm-hmm. because there's responsibility. There is a commitment and there was a child, my mother, you know, and they didn't particularly mm-hmm. like each other in my remembrance, sure. but they stayed together for that commitment, which to me is is like dishonesty in, in a way with each other, you know, if you really don't mm-hmm. like each other, but that was the culture, that was the norm. And so mm-hmm. just the piece about polyamory that I like is that the honesty, you know, I think personal responsibility in relationships is so important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so just that that is an important component of it when I've worked with polyamorous couples. It's so important. And I think Lisa, the, the really cool thing when you see a couple have 
healthy, honest, open communication um, is that I think some people who participate in polyamory are surprised but able to work through very normal feelings like jealousy and insecurity and fear and they evolve and grow because those are feelings we have in relationships whether they're monogamous or not and it doesn't mean that yeah it doesn't mean that polyamory isn't for you which I have also worked with people for them to figure out that it's something that just did not work for them because the fear and the insecurity was just too great and it's a choice they, it was not something they had to work on and work through. It just didn't feel like the best fit for them. But other people really work through those feelings. Um, and there are normal feelings that come up and asking for what you need, whether it's something as logistical and mechanical as time spent, you know, parameters set up with primary and secondary partners where a certain amount of dates and time is spent with, um, with each Or it's just feelings of like um, fear of like, I'm going to be replaced, which I think is the human existence, right? It is. We work through those things. Yeah. Like we work through those feelings in any relationship that we're having. Yes. I had a thought repeatedly crossing my path that we didn't plan to talk about. So I'll just put it out here that since my experience with polyamorous couples is limited, I have more extensive um, time put in with couples that are in the swinging community and in that lifestyle. And and I was just saying that one one thing I noticed in working with those couples and in my practice, they've all been married couples in a very concrete community where they identify other married couples, you know, or singles to have sex with. But it's fully talked about. There's agreements, there's rules, you know, there's ground rules. And one mm-hmm. couple, a partner violated the ground rules and they divorced. So in my experience, they're taken very seriously. And I just wondered mm-hmm. if in your work, have you worked with couples in that community? A little bit, a little bit, not much, um, but um, it's interesting. I've had a few people wanting to explore polyamory, but then the way, and I do think, okay, so this is the way I think of it. It's like polyamory or open relationships is an umbrella and swinging is a subset Mm -hmm. uh, under that umbrella. And so it's a way that people open their relationship, right, which is the bigger umbrella. And then they choose to either have those partners and connections outside of the primary or they choose to welcome the person in. And some of sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's the same, right? Sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's only one or the other. Right, right. So I like I've how you seen, conceptualize this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> thank you. That makes sense. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So I've seen a few people kind of talking about one or the other and then it evolving into something that fit more for them. Like some couples I hear from them where they prefer to only include the person and swing, which is what you're talking about. Right. Um, and to even have texting done that way. Everything is done as a group. So yes. there isn't, so the agreement is that whether it's sexual or communication, honoring an emotional connection, it's done as a, as a group. As a group, as a unit, yes. As a unit. And then, you know, the other, what we were talking about before and earlier was the, yeah. 
you know, when you go outside of that agreement. Um, right. In a and a polyamorous or open relationship. Right. right. Where partners know about each other, but they're not necessarily hanging out together. Right. And, it, and in fact, sometimes that's part of the agreement is that hanging out, in fact, all, often more like 99% of the time is that the hangouts um, are not together and there's mm-hmm. safe space and respectful space, especially because communities around um, people are even here in New Orleans where it's just, it's a small town. Um, yeah. You know, being mindful of that time spent together is not with other partners in the room or going to the same events and how that can feel to share space that way. Right. You know, so how do you think this relates? And I don't know, I'm asking myself, I'm thinking attachment because, you know, Uh, it takes, I'm thinking a certain person to attachment. (laughs) Yeah. Like I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't be comfortable able, you know, being able to be in, in definitely a polyamorous relationship. Um, I don't think in a swinger type relationship lifestyle either, but, and I think of my attachment. So that's, that's what's prompted me to ask you, how do you think attachment might play a role in these types of relationships? Hmm, that is an excellent question. Um, And thinking of the pursuit of secure attachment in a partnership, I'm wondering if certain people need that less than other people. Maybe if you were Mm -hmm. deficient in secure attachment in childhood, you know, that might be of higher priority or value in an adult intimate relationship than somebody that maybe Mm -hmm. had secure attachment, you know, doesn't have as many fears or anxieties, you know, who might be Mm -hmm. able to be open and feel secure. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I'm really into, um, like, I think that's so important because I'm a psychodynamic therapist. Yeah. Um, Thinking of attachment and family of origin and the conscious and the unconscious. And I'm really into this idea of attaching to ourselves, which is what Mm. our clients come to us to do. And so I kind of see this sometimes as a piece of that puzzle, right? Is like, as we're in this journey, this human life as very spirit, you know, spiritual beings, right? Trying to make sense of our time here. Um, I think this can be a piece that is fulfilling for people to evolve and grow and attach to themselves. Because I think we do that through connection to others. It's such an opportunity to grow, whether it's you and I as colleagues and friends and the connection mm-hmm. I feel to you, or it's with someone that you feel such an, a sexual energetic charge, but or, never yeah. act on those feelings. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's so important to think about this in a broader outside of this sort of like heteronormative world that we live in mm-hmm. um, as a way to grow as human beings. Um, I don't know if that kind of tells you a little bit about what I think in terms of attachment. It does. And I'm wondering, Bridget, how do you use this? How, how do you introduce this in your work with your clients? This, How do you present it? Attachment with oneself? I'm just curious about the language you would use with oh, your people. Um, hmm, probably just how I just said it. I mean, I think that my clients often hear me talk about me... Um, feeling honored to bear witness to their journey mm-hmm. and that as they work through things and I'm just there, it's a sacred relationship that I get to witness them attaching to themselves. So often our clients feel like they're attaching to us, right? And right. the work is in this relationship. 
but that reframe and putting them back to you no, know, this is this is work you take with you into the world. This is not meant to last forever, although it will touch you and be meaningful for a very long time. This is about you know the sacred relationship with the self. Oh, I like how you say that, a sacred relationship with the self. Yeah. So do most clients that you work with, it sounds, you know, I hear themes of spirituality coming into our dialogue and discussion. Is that a, a regular part of your work with clients or does it depend on, on where they are? Well, it's a regular part of my work, whether they know it or not. <laughs> I know. Same here. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I mean, um, it just has to be. That's just how I've, I've grown as a clinician as an, and as a human being. My own spiritual journey, my meditation, cleaning our energy of all the things that we take on. It's just sort of evolved for me that way. Um, and I do. I, I talk about it with clients who, you know, I meet the client where they are. So some clients are into that kind of um, narrative and, and talking that through and they really get into it and and can love that language and are practicing some of those things outside of our sessions. And yeah. other clients, you know, maybe not so much. And then of cro- across the spectrum, of course, yes. So when you said that your your evolution as a therapist and I know as an individual as well, can you can you talk to us about how you decided to become a therapist and what some of your personal journey has been? Yeah, definitely. Um so I've wanted to be a therapist since I was little, since I was really? a little kid. Mm-hmm. No way. I did. Okay. Yeah. Um I think, when do you do that project? I don't know. Fourth grade, fifth grade. Like, what do you want to do when you grow up and you draw the picture and mm-hmm. <laughs> the, art, the artwork? And so that's when it started for me. I mean, I think like most therapists, I could be wrong about this, but I think I'm accurate that most therapists started within their family. You know, we were amateurs then, but the right. study of behavior and emotionality and like what's going on here and putting the pieces together and I've always been interested in um, behavior and emotions and the way people work together in communities or in families and um, so it started for me when I was really little and I never wanted to do anything different really. Oh that's so cool and did you know when you were young like people do this for a living they talk to people and help them? I think so. I mean, I think I, I knew of psychology and the study of human beings and um, communities, and that's what was always pretty interesting to me. Um, and I'm sure I knew that. I mean, I had the ideal, which it took it took some work to get to a private practice. Um, right, right. But I, I'm sure I had some knowledge of like. That was the dream. I'm not sure who the first one. The Sopranos wasn't on then, so <laughs> no, no, I'm they weren't dating myself. But she was one of the first <laughs> famous therapists on yes. you know, HBO. But I'm sure I did know that they existed. I, I, I'm asking because you know you were so young and knew you wanted to be a therapist and help people in this way. And similarly, my my dad gave me 
a few years ago, apparently when I was five, I scribbled, I want to be a psychiatrist. And to me, it's a little Ah. alarming that at five years old, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. But my mom was a psychiatric nurse. My father's a physician. So I was already always around, you know, medical people. Yeah. And um, and it's like in the scribble scratch and, you know, I misspelled psychiatrist, but it's cute, you know, so I'm like, oh, my gosh, like. I love that. Yeah. So, and, and so I didn't know about therapists. I didn't know there's other types of professionals that help people. Cause you know, I realized I don't want to prescribe medication and do what a psychiatrist does. So I refined it to become a social worker. But I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. You said that for you too, it was as a young person in our families, you know, like, like kind of probably what, I mean, I know for me wanting to figure myself out and help my family be different. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. And I can remember being not five, but, you know, maybe like nine, ten, and really enjoying being a good friend or listening to people um, talk through things, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I knew that that felt... Um, true to my spirit like on some, I'm giving it adult words because obviously when you're little you don't know but that felt so good to me to make a difference in someone's yeah. life and to just you know so often people want to be heard yeah and um to share their experience and what they're going through and I I really felt the joy in that from That's a beautiful. young age yeah. Aww, yeah and now you're able to do it professionally and as a mother and wife so you're yes. you're doing a lot of giving and loving. Yeah. So can you talk to us too about, so is, is your, I know that you work with addictions and couples. Can you talk to us more about your practice and the type of clients you work with and, and what you enjoy doing most in your practice? Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, we've talked about two of the big um, threads that I have in my practice. It's a general practice. I'm a private practice in uptown New Orleans, and I see a little bit of everything, but two big um, populations that I work with would be addiction and and couples. And um, I see, I mean, depression, anxiety, some of those general themes, but um, I tend to work, yeah, with a lot of alcohol and drug addiction. Okay. How do yeah. you how, how do you work with those individuals? Um, well, I guess so. It just depends on the, if the person's coming to me with an awareness around um, drinking mm. and using, or if they're already sober. So I kind of okay. work across the spectrum. Um, but my approach is um, definitely from the, a disease model approach, where you know I believe that um, addiction is. There's a genetic predisposition and yeah. um, and then other life factors can really help to feed that disease. Yeah. Um, like trauma or attachment, as we were talking about. Right. And, um, and so I work with individuals. I would say, you know, because my population also, um, I have a large, like 20, 20 to 30, 20 to 35 population in my oh, that's practice. That's so cool. Yeah. 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 I love that age. Um, it's such a time of self-discovery. And it is. And, yeah. And so I think some, you know, now we have so much more knowledge about addiction and people are so much more informed about 
abusing alcohol or binge drinking and what's the difference between that and having the disease of alcoholism and so I'll see people coming in just questioning their drinking or using um, whether they're daily pot smokers or you know drink once a year but notice things when they drink right so yeah. Um, I enjoy I enjoy working with all people, even if they come to find out that, you know, they never want to get sober, but this is something they'll keep a pulse on and maybe they have addiction in their family. And so we just kind of work together for them to be as aware as they can be about themselves and, and grow and um, be mindful of something that can become destructive in their life. Yes. All the way to the person coming in who knows they have a problem, who is, um, dare I say, detoxing, um, but maybe a daily drinker or daily user and fully aware and having tried to stop on their own and needing to go through a, more of a triage or treatment team approach to um, to get clean and sober. Yeah. Well, which is very I, tricky. But Can we come back to that in, in a second? Because when when you started with talking about alcoholism from a a disease model basis, I think that that science does show that there are genetic predispositions for addictions that can be activated, you know, by certain triggers and in one's development and in one's life. And, um, you know, and I think once use crosses a certain threshold, you know, that it, it crosses over from, say, recreational use to dependence, you know, where the cells of one's body really starts hooking in with the substance of choice, alcohol, whatever mm-hmm. drug it is. And then addiction, you know, where there is, a, you know, it's a need that the body needs a substance to, to, you know, it feels like to keep you alive. And, and that's what I think the disease model of addiction and kind of oversimplified, you know, like what one what an individual can be dealing with. And I think, you know, sensitivity is really important in working with people with addictions because, as you know, oftentimes, you know, family members, loved ones might be quite judgmental. You know, why can't you just stop? And so I think a person with an addiction has a lot of shame, uh, typically, that that we're helping them to work through. Have you found Mm -hmm. that as well? Um, Yes. Yes, I have. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you're bringing up shame. That's such a, <laughs> a loaded yeah. word for a therapist. I, I mean, I think most clients I work with are dealing with shame. I think that's mm. another part of human suffering. And I think addiction is a component of that, whether it's the way they're using or the things they do when they're using or the fact that they can't control their using. Mm, um, yeah. So I think there's so, you know, I mean, every client I see, we talk about guilt and shame. And um, I love Brene Brown's work oh, around me too. shame. And yeah. yeah and, what do you like about her, her work around shame? Um, Just that she normalizes it and talks yeah. about the human experience around it and being vulnerable, not just with another person, but with ourselves creating a deeper relationship with ourselves um, means lots of forgiveness and lots of compassion and releasing the shame and the guilt and the ways that we um, can be so critical of ourselves. I agree. So 
Yeah, I agree very much that self-forgiveness and compassion are so important when we work with our clients around addictions or or a lot of other themes and issues that people are bringing in to us. Right. So also in the addiction field and in your experience, I've done a lot of work with people utilizing the harm reduction model. And for listeners that might not be familiar with that, it's kind of an alternative to the abstinence model where, you know, if someone is not ready to be abstinent from alcohol or drugs, that they might go through a a time frame where they're trying to minimize harm to oneself. Mm -hmm. So it's harm reduction. What do you Mm -hmm. utilize that model in your work or have you seen clients coming to you with that perspective in mind? I... I de- I'm familiar with harm reduction and um, I use it. Uh, I think you and I have talked about this probably some years ago. Um, yeah. I use it in the framework for me um, clinically, just thinking about meeting a client where they are. So my training was a bit more um, conservative than that. Sure. My training was um, much more with, a recovery model and not working with clients um, who are not, who are not working with clients who are actively using, right? Mm -hmm. So if they're Mm -hmm. in the addiction, um, they need to go to AA, detox, do certain things in conjunction with continuing therapy. And what I've found is that there's so many people suffering with addiction that um, it feels like a disservice to have that hard and fast rule in my practice because I feel like people really want help, but they're not maybe not there yet. Yeah. And and I what I've learned as you probably can relate to is that I am only one tiny piece and component in someone's journey. And Mm. I try to not get lost in thinking that I know what's best for a client. I really want them to believe that they know what's best for themselves yeah. and yeah. um and that they can expand on that knowledge and insight and so addiction just falls under that that's how I approach it and so I I hesitate to say that I practice harm reduction but right. when it when it meets a client where who is not wanting to use cocaine every day but is not yeah. ready to go to AA and see every drug as an issue for them um, then I do. I meet that client where they are. And we continue with lots of love and compassion to help that client grow. And um, hopefully, you know, that means that they reach some level of joy and fulfillment where they can uh, have reconciliation around what using means for them. And I, th- I think people are able to figure that out for themselves, you know, with the help of a professional in a safe I- way. Yeah. I think what you said just now is very well said and and for me as well puts in perspective where I also see harm reduction as as fitting because you know I think alcoholism and severe drug abuse just ends in death. I mean I think there's you know it's meant right. certain addictions just end in death and there's you know you can kind of extend that out but I think you know, for the person that's ready to just be in a full recovery program, I think that's, you know, beautiful, the most healthy. And like you said, it's not 
you know, not everyone's at that place all of a sudden. And it might take a journey of let's practice some harm reduction, you know, for you to contemplate full abstinence, you know, once you possibly start to feel better because you're using less drugs or drinking less often. So I think it might help be those baby steps, you know, that an individual can use to get to full abstinence if that is going to serve them the best, you know, to be the most clear. So, yeah, I like how you're open to that with helping clients mm-hmm. that might not be in that place to take the leap, you know, a full mm-hmm. sobriety. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing. I love that you said that too, that it ends in death and um, is a, a hard thing to suffer with. Um, yeah. And that's, that's why for me, it, it's so important to reach as many people as I can Yes, um, around it and for them to have a safe space to figure that out. I think it's great and so important that you do this in your work. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. How do most clients get referred to you? How do people typically find you, Bridget? Three lovely people like you. Um, Yes, I I refer to you often for our listeners to know neworleanstherapist.com. Thank you, Lisa. Um, yeah, definitely word of mouth. I mean, I've been here since grad school. I went to Loyola University mm-hmm. and um, I advertise, but I have to, and I, and I take some insurances, but I mean, I have to say it's word of mouth. It's through, oh. it's through very special relationships with colleagues um, who refer, you know, when they're working with individuals or couples, they refer the others to me and we work together to help to give people the best treatment possible. Yeah. And I would say that's how most people find me. I also work with a lot of Tulane students. I know you went oh, to Tulane. So, cool. so yeah. I'm located right near the university and I'm able to work with a population that is really dear to me, which is the, you know, the 20 somethings, the 18 to early 20s who are figuring things out and have um, lots of challenges that they face being away from their families and home. Um, for the first time and a lot of those young adults are able to just walk or bike over to me which is quite nice that is and it's the second time that this age group has come up in our talk so i want to talk a little about you know i love that age range to college students like you said earlier you know like just the the energy and the you know, I like just the potential for their growth and well-being starting off so young, you know, coming to work with you. And I just think it's so exciting as well. It's so exciting. And it's so neat when you get someone who's a freshman and you see them, you know, on and off through graduation and finishing in four or five years and to see how much they grow as people and to see them move mm-hmm. on with their life. And it's such a, it's such a great time. I would not personally go back to that. <laughs> Me neither. Life, but Me I neither. Love, yeah. you know, bearing witness to someone else's journey. Bearing witness. How, I, yeah. I like how you say that. Yeah. And that you can use all your wisdom. And I bet that, you know, clients of that age range really relate to you because you're young at heart, you know, and, and have a lot of energy. Young at heart is the key, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, I think they probably see me as, you know, an older, an older person. But, um, but I really, I mean, I think that they can appreciate the sacredness of a, of a space 
and feeling so brave to be away from their families, but really scared. I mean, it's terrifying. And I don't mm. think most, most of them, I think, um, can admit that going to university or college, you know, states away from their families was something that they saw as amazing and exciting. And then, right. and then it's, it's not exactly what people think that it's going to be. And it's difficult, you know, to be on your own for the first time and to make friends and to be part I of a, a subculture that you don't know anything about. about. Um, in a new place. And in a new place, right. So I think it's a hard time. And I think, you know, young, young women and men learn a lot about themselves and they struggle. I, I see a lot of anxiety in that, in that, in that age population. Range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, anxiety you and some depression. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. You first. Hmm. I was just saying like some of the general things that we see, like the anxiety and depression and, um, I see a lot of in that age group and it's, and it's not, um, always like clinic clinical. It's just, um, even low levels, just right, rightful. What do I want to say? Like adjustment, like, adjustment. Appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Appropriate fears and adjusting to a huge milestone in life. Yes. And so I wonder, you know, in your 10 year plus practice, um, I've noticed a trend that there are more and more college students, particularly I have a lot of Tulane students that I see and the university really supports their students to come to therapy and help helps them to find therapists. Have you noticed? And, and this has been like kind of an explosion of college students in my practice in the last, I don't know, three, four years. Have you noticed as well more and more college students coming to therapy than say 10 years ago? I would say so. I I agree with that. And I know that um, not just locally, but nationally, college universities, okay. especially high-performing ones, have really struggled with addressing the mental health needs of their kids. If you read, you know, some of the research around that, it's like um, a pronounced increase in suicide rates, I think, has made universities yeah. really address that in a critical way. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree with you. We see an increase in number in our private practices because universities really can't do the long-term treatment that some of the young adults need. And so they're seeing them in shorter terms, but then referring them out to make sure they get the care that they need to adjust, um, to life. Yeah. So uh, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to talk about during our time talking about your work and, and such? Um, what, what did you say there? Is there something that we haven't covered? That yeah, that you want to bring up? Yeah, and talk about before we are, you know, wrapping up today. Hmm. Um, there's something I would like to share. Can I, can Please. I read a little something? Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you know, um, Nikita Gill? I don't. Do you know any writing about by Nikita Gill? Um, I'm really into this. And sometimes I bring it in a session, but sometimes I don't. And okay. she, she wrote a poem in a chapter of her book that's called Heal. And okay. it says, when every part of you aches with loneliness, seek no one else. Now is the time to seek yourself. And I think that sums up what we do. I think, I think that I think it's beautiful, too. And I think um, it's such an honor to do what we do and oftentimes it does not feel like work at all yeah 
I think that's really when we're in the flow and, and there are moments as well that I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe, you know, like, like individuals, couples, families come in and trust us with things they've never told anyone, you know, and it, it's just such a sacred work that I know you take seriously and I do as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I'd like to ask all you know, guests that I have on, what is it, Bridget, that is important for you to leave, you know, in your work personally, in whatever way you want to answer it, like that you want to be known for, or just kind of like important for you in this life to have transmitted and, and just boom, like, you know, get out here. Uh, I think as a mom and as a practitioner, um, it's touching each soul and spirit that I come in contact with, whether it's my professional self or as a mother, but I'm touching that soul and that spirit and hopefully making a difference. I like that. And I I, want to add on just in knowing you that you bring genuineness and you bring authenticity to both your personal life and your professional life, which I think is really powerful. You're welcome. That's, That's a great compliment. You're very welcome. I'm so happy to know you. I'm so happy to know you too, Lisa. Awesome. Well, thank you for being my guest today, Bridget. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And for our listeners, I have just been speaking with Bridget Falcon, LPC, and she has the website and practice online called NewOrleansTherapist.com. Thank you for being on with me, B, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Lucy. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. That concludes our show for today. Join me next week as I bring you an interview with another guest. I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tyson.